source of true delight, my unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my pleading die. 15, if you don't have your Bible, uh, we have the Pew Bible. It's the blue book in front of you. Not the blue book you're used to, uh, maybe, but... Um, Verses 1 through 28. This is found on page 961 in the Pew Bible. We're not going to look at this in absolute detail, every single part, but uh, we're going to draw uh, some important, important teaching for our lives, hopefully, uh, from this passage. This is the classic passage of resurrection. We often talk of 1 Corinthians 13 being the love chapter. This is the resurrection chapter treated in a more complete way than anywhere else. And you, you've heard, no doubt, at uh, funerals, verses 50 through uh, 58 at the end uh, that speak of the final resurrection, kind of describing the event itself. But now we're going to read in the first part of this chapter. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. There was a group that was influencing the church in Corinth to this end. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, 
Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. That's the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our understanding and to our very lives. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, as we come to look at this most critical event in the history of the world and the most critical event for our own lives, an, an event that, Lord, if we are to trust in it, determines our lives from here on out. And it really determines the whole future of the world. It determines the final state of this world being renewed. Lord, we pray that the resurrection will not be an item that we pull off the shelf every Easter. And not even that it will be celebrated only every Lord's Day, the day which you were raised, but Lord, it would be celebrated every day of our lives, that we would live out this newness, that we would explore its beauty and glory all of our days. Lord, that we would manifest the very resurrection of Christ and that we are joined to that resurrection in our lives by the way we change, by the way we love both in our homes and in our community. Lord, may we exhibit that we are joined to this resurrected Christ and that we are those who will inherit the final resurrection in the last day and participate in the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. Oh, bless us, Lord. Draw us to yourself. We ask this for the glory of Jesus. Amen. This uh, passage has some important words that I want to draw to your attention right at the outset because he talks about this gospel, this gospel that proclaims the death and resurrection of Christ. In the very first words he says, uh, this is that which you've received, in which you stand, by which you're being saved. 
And that is a question to address all of us. Am I living by this gospel? Is this death of Christ and resurrection of Christ, has it become the centerpiece of my life, the driving force of my life? Does it provide me the perspective I have in every aspect of my life? Is it the resource out of which I live out a new life to God? Serious questions. It really is the question between life and death. It's not an intellectual thing. It's not just that we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's not what this is about, some proof that, hey, it was really cool, God raised a guy from the dead way back then. The question is, have you embraced this new reality that was brought about in Jesus Christ? Is this now your reality? Is this the life that you are living, the new life of resurrection that is found in Jesus Christ? Well, there's several things to note in this passage. One is the foundation of his death and resurrection. You'll see that in both when he says he, he died for our sins, it's in accordance with scriptures. And when he re- was raised on the third day, it was in accordance with the scriptures. Then you have this kind of indicator of the reality. He died and was buried. This is the evidence that he really was dead and the evidence that it was a real resurrection. And then after saying he was raised, he says he appeared. And of course, because he's talking about resurrection, he really goes into that, how many people he he appeared to. But that, just like burial is the indication of a real death, this appearance is the indication of a real bodily resurrection. But these are according to the scriptures. And this goes back to even Christ uh, when he was raised. And he says, you're so slow as he's walking with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus after he was risen. And they didn't recognize him. And, and he was asking them what was going on. And after they indicated that they didn't really know what was going on with the death of Christ and the disappearance of his body, he says, you're foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They spoke of how it was necessary that Messiah would suffer. And it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he taught them the scriptures about himself. And similar things are said later in Luke 24. And so what we have in the Old Testament is this cascade of God's acts of redemption in various ways. And these are basically previews of this final redemption. Trailers of the feature film that's coming. Little glimpses of the promise of future deliverance. And then, so these are actually promises of a future deliverance. They're, They're temporary, they're provisional, but they're pointing to the real ultimate deliverance. And then there's this mounting snowball of promises of this final redemption and final restoration that's going to happen in the earth, especially in the Psalms and Prophets. And all of this action in the Old Testament and all of this word is fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Christ. So all of of the redemption that's pointed to by God's action and by His words finds its fulfillment in Christ. So the Old Testament basically is the substructure of the New Testament. 
It's not that the New Testament just is tacked on the Old Testament or the Old Testament just falls away and the New Testament is sitting there. In fact, it's the very foundation. Imagine if I was taking you to look at a subdivision and we go to this subdivision and I've talked it up and talked it up, but when you get there, all there are are foundations. That's all there are. And I take you and say, look at the concrete on this one. It's really nice and smooth, don't you think? And look at, the, look at the shape of this foundation. I love the way it, ha- it juts out over here. Oh, look at the shrubbery behind that foundation. Isn't that neat? Oh, look, this foundation is a little higher than the ones next to it. And, of course, you would think I'm out of my mind, right? That I'm showing you a, a subdivision of foundations. But you see, the fact, if, if we don't have the New Testament, all we have is a foundation. And the foundation is there for the building. So it's not that the Jews had the Old Testament and we have the New Testament. And sadly, it's not even now that we both have the Old Testament. It's like, if you don't have the New Testament, you don't really have the Old Testament. Because the whole point of it is to bring about this Christ. Every event in the Old Testament, every word and promise of the Old Testament is pointing to Christ himself. It was meant for this gorgeous mansion of Christ to be built upon it. And if without that mansion, it loses its whole point. It leads nowhere. It means nothing in itself. It promises much and delivers nothing. There will be no salvation. There will be no renewal of all things. There will be no final forgiveness of sins and restoration of fellowship with God. There's no way. None of it. In fact, in Romans 3, Paul talks about this. The only reason God could pass over sins in the Old Testament and have a relationship with these people was he was waiting to when he would pour out punishment upon his own son. That's the only reason these people even had a relationship with God is that God was passing over sins in view of pouring out his punishment upon his son. The whole of the Bible is about Christ. And so this bud of the Old Testament comes into its full bloom and blossom and gorgeous beauty of what it was meant to be in the death and resurrection of Christ. So don't ever think this is something brand new that comes along. It was conceived of, we think, before the foundation of the world and everything In fact, nothing in the Old Testament would even have happened if it hadn't been for Christ. There would have been no exodus out of Egypt and formation of the people of God if God hadn't planned that he would bring forth a Messiah from those people. So the whole meaning of everything in the Bible is about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the foundation of this death and resurrection is the Bible. Then we need to see the connection then between death and resurrection in this passage. The connection between death and resurrection. Now, it says that he died for our sins. This indicates that our sins had brought about an alienation from God that deserved death. Absolute, final, eternal death. And that he died for those sins, on behalf of those sins. He stood in our place and bore the death that we deserved. 
That's what it means when it says Christ died for our sins. And so as you come to Christ, as you uh, receive this word and stand in this word and live by this word and are saved by this word, you're trusting in that reality. God has come in the flesh, graciously borne the punishment that I deserve so that I could have forgiveness of sins, so that I could be restored to God and have intimacy and fellowship with God. He died for our sins. Amazing that he would so identify with me. You, like me, hate to be blamed for something you didn't do, right? It would make me so mad if my mother would blame me. Did you break that jar? No, I didn't break the jar. It was my brother Mark, you know. Of course, I would sometimes not take the blame when it was me, you know, and still it was my brother. It was really bad, of course. (laughs) But you just hate to take the blame when it's not you. Can you imagine God, the pure and holy God, in the person of Jesus Christ? He himself never sinned in any way, thought, word, or deed, beautiful and perfect in every way, because he perfectly loved as the law required. And he so identifies with us that the blame for everything we've ever done was poured out upon him and he received the punishment for it. And he did it willingly. When he could have blown the whole world to pieces. (laughs) I love when the, the soldiers come and they say, where's Jesus? He says, I am he. And they all fall on their backs. You know, let's just understand I'm coming willingly. No one takes it from me. I lay down my life on my own. So he died for our sins. But then, interestingly, he says later, and notice this in verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Hey, wait a minute, I thought you said he died for my sins. But you say, if he, there's no resurrection, I'm still in my sins. Yes, that's the connection, the vital connection between death and resurrection. Because without the resurrection, there is no indication that Christ himself was set free from death. If Christ is not raised from the dead, if he didn't leave the prison of death, then we cannot leave the prison of death. He is still under the power of death, and we are still under the power of death, and he lies condemned, and we lie condemned. Godet says Christ dead without resurrection would be a condemned Christ not a justified and vindicated Christ. You see, the resurrection vindicates he was not a sinner himself. He himself was not a sinner. He was the perfect one. And he defeated death and he defeated sin. And therefore, he's risen and breaks the power of death and sin. As Calvin says, in the mere death of Christ, we can discover nothing but grounds for despair. If it's just his death, all we have is a further ground for despair. We're just looking at the death of Christ. Someone who's been completely conquered by death cannot affect the salvation of others. 
How's it going to save you from death? He's dead. He's gone. He was, he succumbed to the power of death, which means horribly, he succumbed to the power of sin. It would be to call Christ a sinner himself. And he is lost and we are lost. And there's no hope for anybody. We still relate to God in terms of our sin. We are still cemented to our sins and we're sinking to the bottom, bottom of the river. We have a vain faith in a dead Christ. Death has victory over Christ. Death has victory over you. Christ is no better off than you and he can do nothing for you if there's no resurrection. And that's why they are absolutely combined. That's why one without the other means nothing. And here is we get into one of the terrible issues with the way people believe about the afterlife. Uh, people don't realize what death really means. And, and you hear all kind of things like, and, and this is from people who don't really claim to be Christians, just if you're American, this is what you think, you know, basically. But uh, they will... They'll die, and it's kind of a folk belief that, uh, well, that's good now. He had a terrible disease, and he's gone to a better place now. That's so good. I know he, he's out there. And they'll say things like, and these are people that are never in church. They never talk about God whatsoever. But they'll say, I just think he's looking down on me now. I think she's with me now. These, these statements about this, this life that occurs afterwards... Uh, I, I believe she knows that we finally got back together. I, I just believe it in my heart. But you see, Scripture views the situation of the separation of a soul and body as an absolute horrifying tragedy. Your body is dead? Your soul is ripped from your body? What? This is viewed as a horror, an irrecoverable loss in itself. It's like a flood of tornadoes ravaging a whole island country of a million people and then a tsunami covers it and all the people and the island are gone forever. Bam. That's how it views death in and of itself. The absolute destruction of a human being. And death is the sign of punishment. Death represents that punishment. It enacts punishment. And really we're to think what is happening to the body we can assume is happening to the soul apart from the mercy of God. Because he said when you sin, you will ultimately die spiritually, physically, forever. Death is not a natural thing. It's this horrible invasion into this world. And what initiates this final destruction of our person is this fragmenting of our very being, the violent amputation of our soul from our body. Both then, we would assume, apart from God's mercy, are under punishment. What you see in the ground is what's happening to the soul. So, there's a dead, rotting corpse in the grave And the soul can be no better off apart from Christ. There's no automatic things get better. 
It's just a sign of how horrible the whole person situation is. And the real question is this. How does that body ever get out of the ground? That's the real question. It's not that we look look at the movie Ghost and then find out, oh, it's going to be okay. You might have to drift around a little bit as a ghost, but then you finally go to the place of light. I, I learned that in Ghosts. You know. No, how do you ever get out of the ground? There can be no restoration without that. There can be no repair of the tragedy of sin and death unless the body comes out of the ground Unless, or if it was destroyed, that it's reconstituted. And so there's this connection between the crucifixion and the resurrection. They come together and there must be this final application of this salvation. The full restoration of the person. Where there's no salvation. It's not a salvation for this disembodied spirit to live somewhere forever. That's, that's not salvation in Scripture view because you still got a bad problem. Part of you is dead and rotting. What about that? That's you. What are you going to do about that? What's going to happen to that? And then as now, now as then, both times, people aren't concerned about that. The Roman world, they, didn't, they weren't looking for resurrection. They were, they were glad to shed themselves of the body so that the spirit could soar off because the body was beneath them. This is the, the, the thinking that was infecting the Corinthians. And nowadays, you hear anybody in any religion talking about the body or any philosophy that the body is going to be renewed? You see, Christianity holds that God entered into creation to transform creation beginning with human beings. And that this this change of human beings would indicate the change of the whole of creation to which I want to go. So there's first this foundation found in the Old Testament. Then there's this connection between uh, death and resurrection. And then we could say there's the future of this resurrection. There's vital connection between death and resurrection. But then there's this future of the resurrection. By raising Christ from the dead, as we get this from verses 20 and following, God set in motion the actual overthrow of death itself. He set in motion the events that are going to happen in the end. And it's like... If you want to think of it as dominoes, when they flip that first domino and you know all these thousands of dominoes are going to finally fall and then maybe there's one last thing where it lights a match or something like that. You know, you think, flip that one, this, this match is going to be lit. You just sit there and wait and you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait. Bam, it's lit. Okay? The end has already begun in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, in Jewish thought their bodies were going to be raised in the last day. But now, the resurrection enters in and takes place in the Messiah, in the middle of history. Whoa! 
So what, what they were looking forward to happen in the last day has broken in through the person of Messiah who represents Israel and becomes the new people of, of God and, and forms the new people of God. Resurrection breaks into this dead world in the person of Christ. And it sets the whole course of the world. And so for death, it's kind of like Raiders of the Lost Ark. When Indiana Jones, from the beginning of that movie, you know, he, he tries to replace the treasure with a, with a bag of sand and hopes that it doesn't trigger the traps, but it, it does trigger the traps, and he runs out trying to escape the traps that are there set to guard that treasure. And I like to think of it like this. When death killed Christ, guess what happened? When death taught that it had the treasure of Christ, Death itself was caught and was destroyed in the collapse of itself. The ancient temple of death, you might say, was trapped and doomed for its death right at the point that Christ was raised from the dead. It was all over for death. It was all over for sin. It was all over finally for anything that opposes God because he says every power would be subject to him no matter what that power is. Every power will be subject to him in that last day. And so, resurrection of Christ is the evidence of the overthrow of this final enemy of death and sin. It set in motion this final death. Uh, the, the, it set in motion the destruction of this final death. And that's why he calls it the first fruits, that Christ is the first fruits. The, the full harvest is inevitable. It's guaranteed by God Himself. Christ's resurrection represents our resurrection. It is our resurrection in a sense because ours is connected to it. Because the, there's this problem. We are in Christ. We are joined to Christ. But believers still die. So they must be raised because they're joined to the one who is raised, you see. It must happen. And you can look at this. You can look at it, at it this way. It's really the earlier and later part of the same event. Resurrection has come. First his, then ours. But they're all part of the same event. The first one wouldn't have happened if, it wasn't, if the second wasn't going to happen as well. And so the creation itself is not just a, a place of temporary usefulness. It's not just not the context where God saves souls and they go as these disembodied spirits away from the earth and it's just discarded after that. No, the earth itself is renewed. As Colossians 1.20, it says, God through Christ was reconciling all things to himself. All things to himself. And as Wright says, it's not simply that the Creator God has done something remarkable for one individual and, and that we're all gathering around and say, oh, look what He did in Christ, look what He did in Christ. No, what He did was change the whole course of history. He changed the whole course of our lives. He brought into being final resurrection. And he brought into being the possibility that we could be delivered from this present evil age and we could live new lives of love in Christ Jesus. That's what the resurrection means. And it means that the whole of the earth will be renewed because of this resurrection. 
This creation is not a waiting room that we then leave to go in the main part of the building. This place will be reconstructed and renovated and renewed. As one has said, the resurrection of Christ in isolation from our resurrection is no gospel message at all. That means nothing to us. If it's just his resurrection, what does that mean? But if it means our resurrection, then there's good news. And if we are resurrected, but the creation is not, then what is that? That is God denying his creation. That's a creation-destroying gospel. God leaving his creation, abandoning his creation. But as Acts 3.21 says, heaven must receive him until the period of restoration of all things. Or the way the NIV has, until the time for God to restore everything. Or another one, until the time of universal restoration. You see, God will finally vindicate the created order. This is mine, and I am king over it. It it does have integrity as my creation. I have stood by it. I've not abandoned it, and it will be totally restored in the end. So you see, the future of resurrection is the future of our transformation, where these lowly bodies, as he describes it later, will become bodies of power and and bodies of unimaginable honor. Bodies that manifest the Spirit in a way we never could have imagined. And these new bodies are made completely free of sin, and so we interact with new bodies in new perfect relationships with one another in a new restored creation. And maybe there are several visitors today here, but... Paul describes, and I saw I'll say something I've said before, but Paul describes creation as in bondage. And you think, gosh, this creation is stunning. It's really magnificent. It causes me awe every day, really. Well, if this is creation and it's crippled, what's it going to be when it gets out of the wheelchair and starts galloping across the field? What's that creation going to be like? What's it going to be like when we're renewed to be a part of that new creation? And all misery and sin and conflict is gone. Kind of get your mind around it. Kind of hard. It's amazing that the resurrection of Christ indicates the subjection of all things to God in the final day. Well, I want to just, I want to close by talking about the grace of this resurrection, the sheer grace of this resurrection. We talked about the foundation of resurrection and the connection between death and resurrection and the future of this resurrection as it transforms the whole of the world. But there's grace in resurrection because he resurrects who? You know, dead people. (laughs) Absolute dead people. We, ought, we bring nothing to the table. We can offer nothing. We don't meet God halfway in this. Resurrection is enacted on those who spiritually are dead and finally those who are physically dead. It's an act of sheer grace and goodness and absolute power on the part of God that He would bring us to this final life. When we were lost 
We had no hope but to rot and our souls to be destroyed forever. And we deserved it. And yet he came in our place to die for our sins so that he could offer a whole new life and a whole new future for us and the whole of creation. It's interesting that it, with resurrection, it's almost always God that, that raises and that we are raised or Christ is raised by God. You remember that moment in Chariots of Fire when uh, uh, Harold Abrams asked uh, Sam Musabini to coach him and you could tell Sam was a little bit offended by it. And he finally got to his point and he says, it's the coach what does the asking, right? It's kind of, I'm the one that does the asking. And that's what's so cool about this teaching. It's God what does the raising in the last day. It's the almighty God, the creator God, who brought all things into existence, of whom Paul says, he calls into existence that which is not. And he makes it happen. It depends entirely on God's will and his gift of grace to give life to the dead. As the dead, we have no power to create life. We have no power to resume life. But for God, he brings life out of nothingness. And so the message of salvation goes out to the nothings in the world, to the disinherited into the world to the helpless and the broken in the world. Because we're not talking about a self-help program. We're talking about the resurrection of God himself. And interestingly here, Paul talks about his own uh, commissioning as an apostle. And there's a word here that you might find interesting, and I, I... I gravitate strongly toward this opinion of of what he's indicating here. He says, um, last of all, verse 8, talking about the appearance of Christ to all these, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The one untimely born, it's translated sometimes as abnormally born, but it basically means a stillborn child, prematurely born dead fetus. Here's Paul's description. And he he uses this, this graphic word to indicate, I was persecuting the church of God. This was God's people. These are God's people. I was in pursuit. I was going after them to kill them, to imprison them. And right as I was doing that, he had mercy. His grace was shown to me. I was hostile to Christ. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. I was absolutely dead, stillborn when God found me. Luther says that Paul compared himself with a dead child until I was reborn by Christ. And the scripture points to us in the same direction. In Ephesians 2, when it says... You were dead in your trespasses and sins. We're all stillborn. We're all dead. And it says, we we lived in sin. We carried out sin. And as we carried out sin in that condition, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive with Christ. (laughs) There's rescue. 
Not rescue because you earned it and you did a lot of things and God kind of took notice of you and said, well, you know, Darwin's doing a lot better now. Maybe I'll meet him halfway. Maybe I'll do something for him because he's been a lot better lately. That's not the way it works. He finds every one of us stillborn, dead. And he must make us alive. He must first resurrect us to new spiritual life. A new life of communion with him. A new life in which now his death and resurrection reorient the whole of our lives. And we live in a new relationship to God, being forgiven, resting in the fact that Jesus has died for our sins and resting in the fact that his new life now courses through our veins spiritually. And, of course, for Paul, what was amazing is that God used this aborted one, this miscarriage, this dead one to then become a vehicle of grace to others, (laughs) rescuing Paul to show grace to so many. Well, for you, for me, the challenge is that you will believe in this reality of this death and resurrection of Christ. It's the new reality, and you must embrace it as your new world, your story that you will now live out. Bonhoeffer writes about this, and he says, It's not that God's help and presence must still be proved in our life. God's help and presence have been demonstrated to us in the life of Christ. It's more important for us to know what God did in God's Son, Jesus Christ, than to discover what God intends for us today. The fact that Christ Jesus died is more important than the fact that I will die. And the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead is the sole ground of my hope that I too will be raised in the day of judgment. I found found salvation not in my own life story, but in the story of Jesus Christ. Only those who allow themselves to be found in Jesus Christ, in His incarnation, in His cross, in His resurrection, are with God. Will you put yourself in the hands of this God who's given His Son to die for sins and to be raised for new life? To believe and to put yourself to identify completely with Christ and to have Him as your source of life, to have Him as your new identity as a human being. And finally, for we who are believers, the death and resurrection of Christ are, as Paul's words in Ephesians 3, unsearchable. He says, I preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. I always think of Scrooge McDuck, right? And he had that big, big, giant, you don't even know how big the warehouse was, right? And it was piled high, it looked like hundreds of feet thick of gold, and he would be in there like swimming in it, you know, just diving in the gold. That, that, that was his house. So I, I think of that in the unsearchable riches of Christ. But I want you to think about what it would be like if you had a million square foot castle mansion. Million square feet. That's like 50 acres of house, okay? And based on what you could have in a 2,000-square-foot house, that would mean like thousands of bathrooms. Why you would need thousands, but you have thousands. Every one of them is different. Every one of them is so cool and so pretty. 
Hundreds of kitchens, thousands of bedrooms, hundreds of various living spaces and balconies and porches and entertainment areas. And you'd find yourself years later saying, I found another bowling alley. You should see the gym I just found. Wow, this movie theater is bigger than the last one I saw. What would that be like? You would not get to the end of that house. And by the time you touched on one part and got familiar with it, one part that you lived in three years ago, you'd want to go back to it and explore it. That's what the death and resurrection of Christ is like. Unsearchable. The beauties that it brings to us, the extent of what it does for this world. You may believe in this resurrection and some years down the road find out, wait a minute, this means he's going to change the whole earth? I never saw that room before. This means that I have a new power against sin to live in a whole different way? I've never seen that kitchen before. But your whole of your life, is exploring this magnificent mansion, castle of the death and resurrection of Christ. That's why Paul could say at the beginning of this uh, book, I preach Christ and him crucified. And this he meant to include the resurrection. He said, that's what I preach. It's Christ. It's the extent, the mansion, the glorious castle of Christ. This is what we'll explore the whole of our lives and live it out more and more. And this is what we'll explore for the rest of our life, the riches of the beauty of the glory of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. O Lord, take hold of our lives by your death and resurrection. And may we, Lord, by your grace, take hold of this glorious action of God for sinners. O Lord, may we not find ourselves outside of it, but find ourselves in the middle of it, in the middle of this story, taken by this story, caught up by this story, gripped by this story, enveloped by this story. Oh, Lord, may we embrace you gladly. May we take hold of you and rest in you. May we get into this salvation like like Noah got into the ark. May we get into the ark of Christ. And it carry us through all the storms and difficulties and tragedies that each one of us will face in this life. And more and more in the midst of those to live out the precious death and resurrection of Christ. Dying to our evil. Living to love. Dying to all that is destructive in our lives. And living to all that is beautiful, can be beautiful in our lives and in our relationships. Oh, bless us, Lord. And thank you that you have taken such drastic action to rescue your people, and not only your people, but to rescue this earth. Oh, Lord, you indeed are the sovereign God over your creation, and this creation will be yours and is yours. And it's shown through the very resurrection of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America.
Away. Won't you chase my fears away? 